promises of the gospel, let's now turn to our scripture reading, which this morning comes from Colossians 3. I trust that this is becoming a familiar chapter to us, as it's the third time that we've been in Colossians 3. And yet I also trust that you will discover there great riches uh, that, are, that are to be found in, in the Word of God. So Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17 will be our reading. Colossians 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So far, the reading of God's word. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 133, stanzas 1 and 2. The verses that we'll be giving our special attention to this morning are verses 12 through 15 of Colossians 3. Since it's only a few verses, let's read those again so they may be fresh in in our minds. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 15. The Word of God. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So far, the word of God. 
Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, in this text we begin to see the first glimpses of new Christian life and what it looks like in practice. Um, our, our text is now the flip side to the, the previous verses that we looked at, verses 5 through 11. Those verses were all about the old people that we used to be, that we are now called to put to death. The people that we were before we knew Christ. They need to die, and new people need to come to life. And so, before we delve right into the specifics of this text, we need to remember again, as we will probably every sermon, the big idea here in Colossians. It's so easy to get this wrong, to to read this backwards. Paul is writing to Christians. Christians, to those who have come to know Christ, who believe in Him and have joined themselves to His church. Uh, And in Colossians, if if there's one thing that Paul is trying to do more than anything else in this letter, it's to impress upon these Christians the significance of all that God has done for them in Christ. And this message is, is just as relevant for every Christian alive today. If you've come to know Christ, you are, not you could be, you are a new person because of Christ. You've been brought from a kingdom of darkness that you used to belong to and brought into the kingdom of God's Son. You belong to Him. Uh, You are a new person. You have new desires. You have a new future. You have an entirely new identity. Uh, You've been brought from hostility to God and alienation from God, chapter 1, verse 21, to peace and relationship with God. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 12, I think. uh, You've been taken from a a state of spiritual deadness and brought into spiritual life. You've undergone a sort of death and resurrection. Well, if all of that is true, that then has massive consequences for the way that we live here and now. We no longer live as the people that we used to be, but rather as the people that we now are in Christ. If we belong to the kingdom of Christ, and we know that the kingdom of Christ is coming to this earth, that's what we pray for every time we pray, your kingdom come. Uh, and we know that Christ is going to transform this earth and is already transforming this earth, then we live as citizens of the kingdom that is coming, not as citizens of the kingdom that is leaving. And we live, in other words, kingdom down, not culture up. We have a new identity, and that comes then with a new way of life. Uh, And so we saw this in verse 1 already of chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, that is, in the kingdom of Christ, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Well, that means then two two complementary things for our lives. Number one, we saw this last time, we do everything within our power to make sure that the remnants of the old person that are still there within us and and the old kingdom that does show itself still in our lives, that that gets put to death. That's not who you're going to be for eternity. Don't be that person any longer. That was verses 5 through 11. And and we saw that Paul focused there especially on, on sexual sins, on relational sins, and on cultural sins. And, and the, the corollary to that now is you, you are a new person uh, in Christ and a citizen of Christ's kingdom. Make that then 
the defining paradigm for your life here and now. The truth of who we are defines how we live. Or to put it another way, identity precedes activity. Identity always precedes activity. That's what this text is all about. Uh, Paul uses this this language of of taking off and putting on, which is obviously language taken from the the world of clothing. Uh, Some of you work in in the trades, and you you understand this metaphor well. When you come home after a long, hot day, uh, your clothes are dirty and and sweaty and grimy. And, and, And the first thing you do is you take a shower. And and you take those old clothes off. And then once you've taken a shower and gotten cleaned up and you smell nice and everything, you don't go and put that old clothes back on. Why? Because that's not fitting for your new self, your new clean person. Well, that's the metaphor that Paul then uses for our lives as Christians. Uh, We put off the old person and all of its impurity, and we put on the clean robes of Christ. In verses 12 through 17, then, we we see a glimpse of what it looks like to to wear the clothing of Christ. Uh, I would say there's, there's two main dimensions uh, in, in this text, where you can see evidence of, of new life, if you look at all of verse 12 through 17, there is a horizontal dimension, our, our new relationships with others, and that's where he begins. And there is a vertical dimension, our new relationship towards, towards God. And, and so again, in verse 12, the first thing that Paul does here, even though he's done this already, uh, the first thing he does in verse 12 is just remind us in the space of half a sentence, just remind us who we are. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Just a reminder, that's who you are. Uh, We are God's chosen ones. Uh, The Bible, uh, this is the same word that the Bible uses for for election, uh, which is more our our theological term, but in Scripture it's the same the same word. And we need to know that if we've come to Christ and, and have come to know Him, uh, if we've been taken out of that old kingdom and brought into a new one, the, the, the cause is not something inherently better or special in us that God would say, this is a good person to take from that old kingdom and put in the new one. No, the cause is God's sovereign choice. Choosing us from eternity, as Paul teaches elsewhere, uh, to, to save us to pour out His love on us and to show us His grace, to bring us on into eternity. And not everyone in the world is chosen. And not every member of that old kingdom of darkness is brought into the kingdom of God's Son. And many people already have perished, and they will, they will be indeed lost. And, and many more undoubtedly will perish. We who belong to Christ are going to inherit the new earth but not everyone will be there with us. Uh, it's, uh, this is, for, for many Christians, a hard truth to accept because we think, why couldn't God have, have saved everyone? Why couldn't everyone be chosen? But the real question that should be keeping us up at night is, why did God choose us at all? God didn't have to. I wasn't any more righteous than those that He didn't choose who will perish forever. 
I deserve the same. I was alienated from God. I was hostile to God. There was nothing in me that deserved God's choice. And yet here I am. I know Christ. I love Him. And I'm, uh, and I'm being prepared every day for eternity with Him. That is God's sovereign choice. And we were chosen to be holy and beloved. Those are the two words that, that He uses. To be holy means to be uh, set apart. And, and when the Bible speaks of God's holiness, he is, that's the only adjective that is given to Him three times in a row. Holy, holy, holy. It's the superlative adjective. Uh, it refers to the way in, that, in which God is completely set apart from everyone and everything else. He is in a category all to Himself. And it's, it's particularly true with reference to sin and to unrighteousness. God is holy, set apart from all sin, from all unrighteousness, from all impurity. He has nothing to do with it. You will not find it in Him. He is holy. And He has chosen us to also be holy in that same sense. To belong to Him and then also to reflect Him. We are holy and we are beloved. That's an important word. Don't forget it. Um, in, in our reaction against what you might call sort of squishy evangelicalism that loves to talk about the love of God but never speaks of the, the wrath or the justice of God, we, we tend to overreact and, uh, and almost bristle at the statement that God loves you. But it's a, it's a, a holy biblical statement. God loves loves those who belong to Him. Psalm 147, verse 11, The Lord takes pleasure, delight, in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love. Uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 3, The Lord says to Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Uh, Zephaniah 3, verse 17, This is an amazing verse. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. It's quite the picture. God rejoicing, exalting in those whom He has chosen, uh, singing with delight at the fact that they belong to Him. God loves us. If you've come to know Christ, even with all of your weaknesses and your your failures, know this, God loves you. There's nothing soft or squishy about saying that. It is a mighty and a glorious truth that God loves unworthy people like us. So that's where we start when we talk about the Christian life and what it looks like in all of its details. We start with our identity. You are chosen, holy, and beloved. And so this reminder is right here at the beginning uh, because so much of the Christian life really comes down to seeing ourselves the way that God sees us. Taking the way that God sees us and making that the way that we see ourselves. Because again, identity always precedes activity. You will do that which pertains to who you are. And so you need to know and take to heart that God has chosen you, God uh, has set you apart, and God loves you. So he says, verse 12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, 
compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is where we're going to be for most of the morning. Here's what real Christian life looks like in practice. Uh, And I I say Christian uh, intentionally. Christian as in it flows out of our identity in Christ. He starts with compassionate hearts. Uh, I I like the old King James translation better. It's it's more literal on, on this one, though perhaps less comprehensible. But it is bowels of mercy. It's a Greek metaphor. They use this, uh, this uh, phrase in, in the Greek language to talk about uh, what, it, what is deepest in you. And, and so they, they spoke of the center of your emotions as being in your gut, in your, in your bowels. Uh, we, we talk about a, a gut reaction the same way. A reaction that really comes from who you are, uh, we call a gut reaction. Well, that's the sort of thing that that Paul is talking about. The gut reaction that Christians should have in all circumstances is compassion. A gut reaction of compassion. Why? Because our identity is is bound up with Christ, and that's what Christ is like as well. He's compassionate. Any, Any Christian who knows the person that he or she once was and the person that God is making them to be by His grace entirely will have a gut reaction of compassion towards everyone else. And, and, I, and again, I say that deliberately towards everyone else because they know how lost, how miserable, how undeserving they were, and that should fill them with a holy sense of compassion. Oh, hear me on this then. As, as Christians, we are not a judgmental people, or at least we, we shouldn't be. Uh, Yes, we do make judgments. Uh, We must. We detest the sin that God, uh, that Christ came to die for. So, uh, just as we learn love, we are to learn a certain kind of of hatred for sin. Uh, We are brought into relationship with God, and that means we are also a people of truth. We, we We have an allegiance to the truth of God. But that does not mean we are to be a judgmental people. Judgmentalism is a a disposition or a character, um, an inclination towards condemnation. As Christians, we are to have exactly the opposite reaction. Instead of a disposition towards condemnation, a disposition towards compassion. And the reason is because we are eternally grateful that Christ did not have a disposition towards condemnation towards us. Uh, We know that Christ has been compassionate towards us, and it should make us compassionate towards all those around us. Uh, That compassion then extends towards everyone. And this is the the challenge for all of us as Christians. We we are good at being compassionate towards certain people, and we we have much difficulty in being compassionate towards others. You think of, uh, especially in in the political spectrum, in in terms of political ideologies, we are compassionate towards those who who align with us. We tend to be uh, inclined towards condemnation uh, with respect to those who are not. Now again, I, I, I qualify this by saying we don't, it doesn't mean, compassion does not mean we, we throw out our, our brains or we, we get rid of our backbone. Uh, no, we are to be a principled people. But that courage and that truthfulness and that, that, that principle is always governed by a heart of tenderness, pity, 
and compassion because that, again, is how Christ has been towards us. Uh, Christ never threw away his brains either, nor his backbone, nor his courage. Uh, scripture says he is the, the wisdom of God, and, and he went to the cross knowing, uh, with, with much courage, knowing what agony it would be. Uh, there, there's no absence of courage nor of wisdom, and yet his ministry is marked by compassion from beginning to end. Over and over we read in the Gospels, and you think of how often you hear this, Jesus felt compassion for the people. And it was compassion and pity that led Jesus to the cross uh, to reconcile himself to us and us to him, even while we were his enemies. So we are a compassionate, or we ought to be a compassionate people. Next, Paul mentions kindness. Uh, Kindness is the the practical working out of compassion. If compassion is the heart, kindness is the hands. It's when compassion gets to work. Uh, So we don't just feel compassion, or we're not supposed to just feel it. We are also to act upon it. Uh, Because compassion that is only felt and not actually lived, is probably not even real, true compassion. Uh, true compassion works itself out in kindness. Uh, now, that's, that's true with respect to, to how we treat people uh, both inside the church and outside the church. Uh, but I think the primary application, if you think of the context here, what Paul is thinking of, I think he's thinking primarily of, of within the church. All of these verses, 12 through 17, describe life within the Christian church. Uh, it has to do with how we treat one another. As citizens of the kingdom, we are to model kingdom kindness primarily towards one another. Uh, people should be able to walk through our doors and observe with their eyes the compassion and kindness that we have for one another. It should be visible. Uh, and con- kindness uh, kindness has to do especially with how we treat others uh, who don't deserve to be treated kindly. Uh, remember what the Lord Jesus says in Luke 6, verse 35. Uh, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward, reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Those are hard people to be kind to, right? It's hard to be kind to ungrateful and evil people. It has to be one of the hardest things. It's one thing to be kind to people who appreciate it, who who thank you for it. Uh, It's another thing to be kind to people who show no appreciation for it, who don't thank you for it, and who may even slander you for it. That's hard. It's hard to return good for evil. Uh, But what we need to remember is that is exactly what Christ has also done for us. I think sometimes God puts those people into our lives precisely for that reason, that we would know what it's like for God to also be kind to us. And here's the thing, uh, just as compassion always works itself out in kindness, if there's the heart, there will also be the hands, so sustained kindness will only ever happen where there is a genuine heart of compassion. If we're going into it saying, okay, God, I'll, I'll, I'll be kind to these undeserving, ungrateful jerks. I guess I'll be kind because you say I have to. 
Well, that's not going to work in the long run. Sustained kindness will only be there if there is also a genuine heart of compassion. Uh, Putting on Christ, then, means learning the compassion of Christ. Learning to see beyond an undeserving person or an ungrateful pattern of life to see a person who is in desperate need of the mercy and the forgiveness of God. Uh, To have a heart that's tender enough to feel pity. Uh, And to remember that, as as the Puritans were, were famous for saying, there go I, but for the grace of God. That's the heart uh, that Christ would teach us. And that brings us then to the the next characteristic that Paul mentions, which is humility. Humility. A proud Christian is a contradiction in terms. I'm not saying it cannot happen, but it is massively inconsistent. A proud Christian is a Christian who must spend more time at the foot of the cross. Humility is is often a misunderstood word. Uh, Humility in Scripture simply means to know yourself for who you truly are. To not think of yourself more highly than you are. Uh, Paul says it in Romans 12, verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. If you want to classify things, uh, I would say there's, you, you can talk about three kinds of humility. There's fake humility, there's twisted or perverted humility, and there is genuine biblical humility. Fake humility is when you, uh, this is very easy, when you speak humbly about yourself but you don't mean it. Uh, you're speaking dishonestly. Uh, you can recognize this when, when someone uh, speaks humbly about themselves, but then gets very upset when others speak lowly about them uh, in the same terms. Uh, you've all heard this story by now, but it's one of my favorites. There's the old woman that went to her pastor and said, Reverend, I, I'm such a miserable sinner. And the pastor said, well, yes, I've actually heard about that. And, and she straightens up and demands, well, who said that about me? Well, that, that's fake humility. It, it's when we, we, uh, we speak more lowly about ourselves than we actually believe to be true. That, that's fake humility. Twisted humility or perverted humility is when we're humble concerning things that are not ours to be humble about. Humble concerning things that are not ours to be humble about. For example, a form of twisted humility is when we fail to honor the image of God with the dignity uh, that it is worth. The image of God in which we were created. Uh, so a person, th- this is what our culture describes as low self-esteem. Uh, and, and it can be an evil thing where it is twisted humility, where we, we hate ourselves, we abuse ourselves, or we tell ourselves lies to break our own spirit. We say, I'm worthless, I'm junk. That's twisted humility. It's not actually humility. In fact, it's pride because it it rejects the the authoritative word of God that says different about us. Uh, It's refusing to listen to God. And and it's abusing and demeaning the image of God, which is not ours to abuse or demean. Uh, It's an assault, ultimately, on God's honor. Instead of facing our own uh, moral failures, our own genuine deficiencies of character, we belittle God's work instead. Uh, Counselors will speak of this in terms of your dignity 
and your depravity. And, and false or twisted humility assaults one's dignity, which ought not to be assaulted. It is, we are made in the image of God and ignores one's depravity. Fails to see the depth to which one is a sinner, and yet is happy to abuse and demean their own image, uh, in the image, uh, their own dignity in the image of God. Now, this is why it's entirely possible to have low self-esteem, to use uh, the the popular term, uh, even to hate oneself and to abuse oneself, while at the same time being too proud to honestly deal with one's own sins and moral failings, and not to mention immaturities. It's entirely possible to have low self-esteem and be utterly unteachable and self-righteous. That's twisted humility. It's being humble with respect to things that are not ours to be humble about. Uh, so whereas genuine humility is, is always devoted and allied to the truth, seeing things as they truly are, uh, uh, twisted humility makes itself an enemy of the truth. Uh, true humility is allied to the truth. Uh, twisted humility is opposed to it. it. True humility then is seeing ourselves as we truly are, as God declares we are. Uh, remember, God has made us the crown of His creation. He's made us to rule over all creation. You think of Psalm 8 that speaks so gloriously about man, and yet it's it's one of the humblest psalms. It says, What is man that you have made him with such great dignity? It's a humble glory. Uh, It's not pride to acknowledge the, the glorious image of God in which we were made. Indeed, that's true humility. It's accepting what God declares about who we are. It's twisted humility to say that we are anything less than that. Um, another a similar example of twisted humility uh, is something that's so common in contemporary uh, churches, which is an inexcusable lack of conviction and backbone concerning what is true. In, and, and it's there in the name of humility. It's saying, I'm not going to be dogmatic about my beliefs because, you know, what do I know? And, and your beliefs are just as valid as mine. It's twisted humility. The truth is not ours to be humble about. It is God's truth. If the word of God is clear, that's not your truth to, to, to have the right to, to question. Uh, there's no contradiction, in other words, no contradiction whatsoever between humility and conviction. Those two things ought to go hand in hand. Uh, If that conviction is properly rooted in the clearly revealed word of God, it is entirely humble to believe and accept it uh, with with conviction. The truth is not ours to be humble about. We didn't make the truth. It is God's truth. And what God declares in His word, we are to accept and proclaim. The humble man or woman accepts God's truth and declares it. A refusal to be taught, a refusal to believe and accept with conviction what God declares is not humility, it is pride. Uh, now, of course, we, we are always to be humble in our, in our interpretations, ready to, to listen, always being teachable, but it is not a refusal then to have conviction and to live by it. Uh, Psalm 25 verse 9 uh, puts this so clearly in one verse, God leads the humble in what is right, and teaches the humble his way. Those, those people come out of that then with conviction. 
Humility, then, once again, is not an enemy of the truth. It is allied to the truth. It is a friend of it. Uh, When Pontius Pilate uh, asked the the famous question uh, at Jesus' crucifixion, or at his trial, that is, uh, Pontius Pilate asked, what is truth? Our culture would say, well, that's a very humble question. But that was not humility. It was cowardice, and it was pride. Uh, True humility, then, Uh, So we've seen fake, we've seen twisted. True humility is knowing ourselves rightly with sober judgment. That means recognizing that we are created with dignity in the image of God, uh, that our lives have great worth to God, but also that we are mere creatures, that we are desperate and wretched sinners, and that we are greatly in need of forgiveness, help, and restoration. True humility then rightly uh, true humility occurs when we rightly understand these three truths. Number one, that we are hum- we are humble because we recognize that we are creatures and we are not God. Uh, that that should be a source of humility. Uh, true humility means knowing our place before God. Uh, we may be proud of the fact that we are made in God's image. It's a good thing to be proud of, uh, but we nonetheless recognize that we are still creatures. Uh, recognizing that we are creatures also means uh, recognizing that there are others who may be created differently and some with gifts that, that we don't have. Uh, that, that also is part of humility, knowing that others have strengths and abilities uh, that are greater than ours because that's just the way that God has created them. Number two, we're to be humble because we recognize that we are also sinners, so the fact that we are creatures is, is amoral. It's, it's neither good nor bad. It's, it's just true, and we are to be humble uh, on account of it. Uh, the fact that we are sinners should give us even greater reason for humility. Uh, we know that we've failed and are undeserving of God's mercy, and that should make us eternally humble before Him. Uh, here, too, uh, we, uh, if we recognize that we are sinners... With true humility, that will also mean we recognize that there are others in our midst who surpass us in righteousness, uh, who surpass us in wisdom or faithfulness or maturity. True humility knows oneself for who one is and is not then afraid to acknowledge that there are others who are in a better place spiritually. Uh, That's uh, what Paul teaches us also in Philippians 2 verse 3. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And that leads to the third truth that humility also recognizes, and that is that the world does not revolve around us. It sort of comes out of uh, the first truth that we are creatures and not God, uh, but, but it is, this is essential to true humility, recognizing the world is not about me. The world is ultimately about God. Uh, one pastor said it this way, True humility is is not necessarily thinking less of yourself, though it usually involves that, but ultimately thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's recognizing that we are not the only person in the world, that we were made to worship God, not the other way around, and that there are other people that God loves just as much as He loves us. It's respecting, then, the worth of others as much as we, we respect our own worth. Now, that's what humility is, if we're defining it. But here, Paul is talking about clothing yourselves with that humility, uh, which has to do, then, with 
How does this work itself out? How does that true humility come across to others? Uh, Because what happens is humble people interact with other people very differently than proud people do. I've never seen a, a big church fight between two groups of humble people. It doesn't happen that way. Humble people interact differently. Uh, as James says, humble people are quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? Because they recognize that they are sinners, or that they are creatures, that they are sinners, and that the world does not revolve around them. They are just as much in need of God's mercy and grace as any other. The gospel of Jesus Christ then should make us the humblest of all people. And when we know that we have sinned against Almighty God, we are worthy of His judgment. We were lost in that old kingdom, and and we were not going to get ourselves out of it. That should make us a humble people. Again, it's not a twisted humility. It's not having doubts about our salvation, saying, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be saved or not. Sometimes people think that assurance of salvation equals pride. It doesn't. That's, that's allying ourselves with the truth of God. So we may, uh, we may rejoice with, with confidence that we are brought into the kingdom of God, but we know that we have not earned that status for ourselves. We know that it's been given to us in Christ in spite of ourselves. That should make us a humble people. Now, related to to humility is also meekness. I'd say meekness, if humility is badly understood, meekness is even more so, uh, particularly in in our culture. Meekness is not the same thing as weakness. Meekness is not the same thing as weakness. Meekness is strength under discipline. It's strength under under discipline. It's strength and conviction accompanied by the humility and gentleness that knows how to rightly exercise that strength. And we should recognize that all over Scripture, from beginning to end, meekness is a virtue. Now, this needs to be emphasized, and we need to hear it because in our culture, meekness is not regarded as a virtue. Uh, and, and I suspect that particularly for men, the, the exhortation to, to meekness chafes against us. Uh, we value in our culture aggressiveness and, and saying it like it is and being bold and standing forth with your uh, perspective. Uh, and, and we think of meekness as if it were weakness. But it's not. Meekness is not a refusal to say it like it is. There's a time and place for that. But it's the humble recognition that we too have had much need to be instructed. And so there's a a gentleness in our speech and our attitude towards others. Uh, Even when we know we are right, as we should strive to do. We should strive to be right and to know it. Uh, Meekness is using that strength of conviction for the well-being rather than the destruction of others. Let me speak especially then to, to the men in our midst. If, you, if you're still resisting this in your minds, uh, because you think that meekness is for wimps, uh, then you don't understand what meekness is. Uh, meekness is a virtue that only belongs to the strong. Only strong people are able to be meek. Uh, You can define meekness on on two levels. There's meekness towards God, 
and there is also meekness towards one another. And and there's a difference between these. Meekness towards God implies also uh, a measure of submission. We are meek towards God. We submit to God's will. We will not uh, be defiant before the Word of God. We will be flexible. We will bow when God speaks. It's when we let the Word uh, of God teach us and bend us and shape us that is true Christian meekness towards God, a, a spirit that is willing to be taught. Uh, meekness towards man does imply also uh, teachableness. We're ready to listen. Again, as James says, slow uh, to, to speak, slow to anger, and quick to listen. Uh, but it also implies gentleness and self-control towards the failures of others or the immaturities of others. It has to do with forbearance, uh, the ability to control one's own anger. And, and that's why it's a mark of strength. He is a strong man who is able to govern and control himself. Uh, Proverbs 25, verse 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city that is broken into and left without its walls. That's not a position of strength. That's a position of weakness. Uh, meekness is, is then related to self-governance and self-control, and it's an aspect of strength. Now, some of the mightiest men in the Bible are described as meek. Uh, Jesus himself, the Lord Jesus, was meek. Uh, he went willingly to the cross. You see the strength there, but also the, the self-control, the self-governance that made him useful in the service of God. Uh, David was meek, though he was a mightier warrior than any of us could ever dream of being. Uh, he, he shows throughout his life courage, fearlessness, and, and, but it is a courage and fearlessness that comes from knowing who he is in, in the sight of God. And so he was meek. Uh, meekness, then, is not a lack of conviction. It's the ability to be gentle and understanding and tender even in our conviction. It's not spinelessness, but strength of character that's willing to suffer injury because we know what is right and because we live by the principles taught by Christ. Uh, When Christ, again, hung on the cross, the crowds may have thought that he was just weak. That's why they challenged him. If you're so great, come down from the cross, you who saved others. But it was strength that kept the Lord Jesus there. And meekness is also a prerequisite for Christian leadership. This is true both, we should recognize this both politically as well as in the church. An inability to control oneself and an unwillingness to suffer offense makes a person biblically disqualified for leadership. That's not strength, it is weakness. Jesus himself said in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Or 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, Paul writes, An overseer or elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. Same word there. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Or Titus 3, verse 2, Christians are to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. Same word and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Uh, One more, James 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. 
quarrelsome, uh, quarrelsomeness and short-temperedness are not marks of strength. They are marks of weakness. Meekness is strength under discipline, controlled in order to produce that which is good. Uh, Related to this, Paul also speaks of patience. It's good to recognize that patience means, uh, particularly in this context, patience towards other people. Uh, in, In other words, it's recognizing they are not yet who they will be when Christ is done with them. And so I will be patient with Christ's work. Now, patience does not necessarily... uh, Let me start that sentence over. Patience does not imply uh, ignoring the immaturities or sinful patterns in the lives of others. Patience is enduring offense while laboring for their good. Enduring offense while laboring for their good. Uh, So patience is is not simply not retaliating, though it certainly includes that, but it's proactively working for the good of others. And patience, too, is another biblical virtue that's often ignored or even belittled. Uh, Impatience is one of those respectable sins, and and it's one of the sins that people are, are most willing to confess... Uh, we readily say it, yeah, I'm I'm not a very patient person. And we confess it so easily because we don't see it for the evil that it is. Uh, It should not be regarded as a virtue to be impatient. Impatience is destructive. It's proud. It's self-centered. And it brings great harm. Imagine if Christ were impatient with us. After all, you too are a sinner. Are you not? And yet Christ is patient with you. And if he wasn't, who of us would be able to stand? And so the fruit of the gospel, when it's really understood and taken to heart, again, we're living out of our identity, uh, the fruit of the gospel uh, ought always to be a patience and forbearance with others, recognizing that that's how Christ is also towards us. That's hard to be patient It is really hard, but it's a hard road that we know Christ has walked first for us. And only after that, if we are his disciples, he calls us to also walk it as well. And there's a special application here for office bearers. It's it's hard to be patient uh, when when progress is slow and, and when people respond, very often returning evil for good. Uh, That's very hard. Uh, But we see there, again, and I think God puts those people in our church precisely so that we would learn this is what God is, uh, what God experiences also towards us. Uh, The first century pastor, Ignatius, uh, as he was being hauled to Rome to be executed there, he wrote to a fellow pastor, uh, he wrote, uh, if you love the, the good disciples in your church, it's of no credit to you, but rather love the bad ones. Bring the troublesome into subjection by gentleness and love, and thus you will prove what manner of disciple you are. By treating the impatient, or or by, by treating the troublesome with love, you will show what kind of disciple of Christ you are. Uh, related to patience is also this bearing with one another that Paul also speaks of. Uh, bearing with one another is, is tolerating the presence of one another. Now, that, that's, bearing with one another is always easy until you actually have to do it. 
um, when, when someone actually commits offense. The idea sounds great. We bear with each other. But when someone commits offense against us, then bearing with one another no longer sounds like such a good idea. The truth is, the reason we're told to, to bear with one another is because there will be offenses committed also against us. You can count on it as a Christian, and you can count on it within the church. There will be brothers and sisters who say things or do things that offend you um, and and that are genuinely wrong. Uh, That's why you're called to bear with them. You wouldn't be called to do it if if it wasn't supposed to happen. It, It will happen. You can count on it. People will step on your toes. People will say things about you that are not entirely true. Uh, People will say things about your family that that bring offense, that make you angry. You can take all of that as a given. Uh, After all, you've done it as well. Uh, When when we're called to to, to bear with one another, it it would be a mark of our humility to recognize that we are also people that other people have to bear with. Uh, this, this is the Christian life. Uh, so the command here is not, for, uh, is not here for when people say nice things about you. Then it's easy to bear with one another. It doesn't get overrided when, when people say what is untrue. Yeah, often people react that way. I know I'm supposed to bear with each other, but this is different because they said something that wasn't true or they did something that wasn't right. Well, that's precisely why and when you're supposed to bear with them. That's why the command is there. The question will be not, what have they done? But how will you deal as a Christian with that offense? Because how you deal with it shows how well you understand the gospel. Because the reality is that even though Christ is is working on us, changing us, making us into new people, He's not finished yet. Uh, We are not yet the finished product. Christ is still changing us, and there's still a lot of changing to go that needs still to happen. As a church, we have to live with people that are works in progress. And that means then we have to bear with one another to endure offenses and to overcome evil with good. It's the only way that a church can ever survive. Now, Paul also speaks about forgiving one another. I'm going to leave that one till next week so we can have an entire sermon devoted to it. We had one a few weeks ago on, on, on the Lord's Prayer that touched on this, uh, but it, it raised enough questions that it's worth having an entire sermon devoted just to, to that verse. So we'll pass over it for now, but we, we want to recognize that forgiveness is the heart of the Christian gospel. It's the starkest proof of living Christian faith. Uh, those who forgive are those who know that they have been forgiven. Uh, if, if anything is uh, the unique territory of, of the Christian faith, it is forgiveness. Above all these, says Paul, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Uh, when Paul speaks of everything, it binds everything. I believe he's thinking of the things that he has just said. Uh, these virtues that he has just described. Love is what binds all of them together in a perfect harmony. Uh, What that means is that the only way to practice all of these virtues that that Paul is calling us to uh, is, is through genuine, sincere love. That's the driving force behind 
compassionate hearts, behind kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other. And it's, it's not only the driving force behind them, but it's also the measure by which we know how to practice them. If you're saying, I don't know how God wants me, uh, what it looks like uh, for, for, for me to be compassionate and kind and humble and meek and, and all these virtues. I'm not sure what it looks like. Love is the measure by which these things uh, can, can be shown to be present, by which we know how to practice these things. Uh, genuine love, for example, uh, resolves the tension behind uh, patience and, and correction. Now, you know you must be patient, yet you know you must correct. Let love, Christian love, be the measure by which you know how to navigate uh, that, that tension. Uh, without love, we will either never correct or we will fail to show patience. Or to give another example, uh, genuine love resolves the tensions between Christian meekness and, and, and a Christian backbone. Both of them we must have. Uh, without, but without love, we will either be overly rigid or overly soft. Let love be the measure that holds these things together. Genuine love, first for God, but then also for one another, binds these things together, teaches us how to hold them in balance and in perfect unity, to be firm and yet gentle, to be persistent and yet patient. And finally, Paul says then, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. In that sentence, you can see the, uh, the interconnection between our relationship upwards with God and our relationship outwards. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body. Uh, that's, that's the upwards. Let, let what is true vertically be shown, demonstrated horizontally. That's the heart of the Christian life. Uh, the peace of Christ, then, is the relationship that God has bought for us in Christ. We have peace with God because of Christ. And, and it's also the sure knowledge, then, that God is our Father, that God loves us. Again, that we are chosen, holy, and beloved. That's peace uh, for the Christian. Uh, there, there's a rest and a contentment there, knowing that, that we belong to our Savior who went to the cross for us and, and went through death into new life. On our behalf, we have peace, therefore, with God. It's that um, stillness of soul, uh, like in Psalm 141. My soul is, is stilled, it is quiet. Uh, that might be 131, uh, one of those psalms. The stillness of soul that comes from knowing that we are reconciled to God through Christ. And when you, when you have that peace, it shows itself horizontally. And when you know uh, what you have been delivered from and delivered for, it, it has a resounding effect on the mercy and grace you show to others. And so, brothers and sisters, all of this comes down once again to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we have new lives. We've been bought by Christ. And so we live kingdom down, knowing this is what the kingdom will be in perfection for eternity, and we bring it down here on earth. We live kingdom down, not culture up. And that truth, the truth of the kingdom, is always, always transformational. No life is ever left the same uh, when one comes to know the grace and mercy of God in Christ. Uh, we say, because that's our future, that's our hope, that's who I will be for eternity, then that is who I will also be now. 
That's what all of this comes down to. The grace that God has shown us. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. It's who we are in Christ, our new identity, that shows who we will be perfectly. And so we, right now, in this, in this hour, we go, we live out of who Christ is making us. Amen. Let's sing in response from Psalm 85, stanzas 3 and 4. Thank <clears throat> you.